Today I want to talk about a guy called Abraham Kuyper, but it's all under the heading, you know, whether or not Kuyper's interesting to you, and I, you know, I really hope he is, he's interesting to me. But uh, I want to speak to you today about this issue of can my faith stand on Scripture? Now this is a, this is a big presenting issue, can my faith stand on Scripture? It's a big presenting issue if you're a Christian, because, the, you know, the, the Word of God, the Bible, the Scripture, this is your main source for knowing about God, for knowing about Jesus, for having a witness to him. But this matters to everyone. You know, even if you're looking in very speculatively today and just wondering whether Christianity might in some way be true, this question is still pertinent for you. Can your faith, can your trust stand on Scripture? So I'm going to use that word faith a lot here today, and I don't want to use it indiscriminately. So before I launch into reading any Bible text or talking about Kuiper or anything like that, let me just define what I mean by faith. And I've got a diagram here for you, which uh, just shows you in pie chart form the, the three parts that are vital to faith. And there, there's, uh, this is something that the reformers of the Protestant church talked about a lot about five centuries ago. Uh, and they use Latin to do it, but I've had mercy on you this morning. And um, I've, I've just used English here. So we've got content, agreement, and trust. If you want the, if you want the Latin unedited, come and see me, uh, and uh, I'll scrabble around for that. Um, but there's these three parts to faith. You're not talking about something just out in the air. And that's, that's kind of what I want to clarify for us here this morning. The reason that I'm talking about what is faith is that we all kind of have a bit of a default view that faith is this kind of airy-fairy thing, that it doesn't necessarily have an object. You can talk about, oh, I'm just growing in my faith. And no one will say to you, in what? You know, you can, you can legitimately use the sentence, I am growing in my faith. And no one, no one will hold you to account on it. And that shouldn't be, because faith needs to have content, needs to have something behind it. And also, we might think about faith as maybe an alternative to reason, an alternative to actually being rational. And, and having a structured argument, a logic in your thought. You say, no, well, you've got your logic, I've got my faith. Or you've got your science, I've got my faith. Things you observe and things that I just believe for no reason, okay? That's not what faith is. So let's just do these three things, and I'll give you a quick example of it before we launch into uh, Kuiper and the text we're going to read. First thing then, content. Faith has to have content. So here's an example. Example, Jesus rose from the dead. That's a piece of information, right? That's what I would call a fact, okay? Jesus rose from the dead. You might think it's a fact, you might not think it's a fact. I think it's a fact, I think that's attested. Jesus rose from the dead, but it's a piece of information, it's a content. Secondly, is agreement. There has to be a general yes in your mind to that fact. So you're saying, yes, that content is actually true. That content's actually true. But you're not taking it to the next step, which is trust. Jesus is the boss of my daily life. That, that happens because, you see, God, the God who is, has vindicated this Jesus as the very word of God come into the world, and he's proved it by raising him from the dead. Therefore, there's a practical outworking. There's something that I do, and that's a practical trust. Trust isn't just this mental ascent. It's putting it into practice. It's acting upon it, acting as if it's true. Yeah? So there's those three parts, content, agreement, and trust. When we're talking about all of these folks that we're talking about in the series, we're talking about true faith. That's what I mean. People who've taken content, people who've said, yes, it is objectively true, but then they've done the third thing, trust, it is personally true. So when you read faith in the scriptures, 
I would say it's almost interchangeable for our understanding with the word trust. To say that you have faith in Jesus Christ is to say that you trust him, that you actively trust him. It's not just, I believe it's true and it's out there. I, I, I assent to it. I agree it. It's also that I trust it and I build upon it. If you trust that this stage is in place, you can stand upon it. I'd, I've got a fair degree of trust that it's going to support me. We'll see. But it is actually acting upon a belief and that belief has a content. Okay. So you want to ask yourself, can my faith stand on Scripture? Start asking yourself that question now. Can your faith stand on Scripture? Does your faith currently stand on Scripture? Some of you might say, yes, yes, it does. Well, let's test that today. You want to say, can Scripture be the content of my trusting and doing in the world, in daily life? Is it possible that it's God's Word? Is that, is that the way that I conceive of it? That the, the Bible is God speaking, not just them, but speaking to me in the here and now. Can it guide my life? Can it be an effective guide? Can it define what I say yes and no to as I try to follow not just the Bible, but the God of the Bible, the Jesus who came into history as I try to follow him in my discipleship, in my life, in my apprenticeship to him? Is it enough for me? Is it worth entrusting to the generations who come after me? Is it worth battling for, saying, no, no, kids, Actually, this is what you've got to get into your life. It's what you've got to get into your heart, into your brain, and into your actions more than anything else. This is heart, head, and hands what you need, the Word of God. It's going to give you purpose. It's going to give you meaning. It's true. It's going to cause you to walk out your life with an integrity that nothing else will. It's integrity literally puts it put you, to, put you together. You know, dis, disintegration, things falling apart. The Bible brings about integrity of life doesn't just mean that you're more virtuous than other people. It means that your life is brought together. Not just that you have a purpose, but you are a fully human, integrated person. That's what's being said. So let's test this then. Let's just look briefly at Kuiper before I read our text. We're going to be reading from Matthew 4 in the first 11 verses. But let me introduce Kuiper to you. He's, um, he's a quite extraordinary man. He's a great man of recent history, and by recent I mean 100 years ago, very recent to me. And Kuiper, he was a theologian, a preacher, a politician, a long-term editor of two national newspapers, an educator, a church reformer. He's ultimately the Dutch Prime Minister from 1901 to 1905, probably the last Western head of state to have been a theologian by training, and it led an extraordinary life. Uh, there's, there's some great biographies of, it, of him out. And uh, in the Clarendon bookshop, we've got uh, some copies of that if you want to go further. Uh, he's very famous in church circles for talking about Christ's lordship over all areas of human life. That actually Christ rules over not just the church, but he rules over the arts and the sciences and the family life and the state. Actually, there's a rulership of Christ if he is this God made flesh, then he's clearly the God of all things. So he teased out a lot of how that, that works out. His, his biographies are great, and as I say, we've got some in stock, very worth availing yourself of. His biographer says, perhaps Kuiper's greatest significance for our own religiously and culturally fractured world is the way he proposed for religious believers to bring the full weight of their convictions into public life, this is important, while fully respecting the rights of others in a pluralistic society under constitutional government. Now, that's no small thing, just in case you think that's something that's throwaway. Bringing the full weight of those things that you actually believe the content of and you enact the content of, you agree it's true, etc., 
into public life where people don't agree the content, they don't agree it's fundamentally true, and they don't enact it. But doing that in a way that doesn't steamroll the people, that's a huge achievement. So it's, de it's definitely worth reading about on your own time. I'm not going to give you a full bio today because we're here to preach the word of God. And um, what I would say, <laughs> the example I'm going to share with you of his life is actually kind of an embarrassing one for him. It's a very uh, uh, inauspicious episode in his history, but hopefully it will have a lot to teach us. So let's just uh, turn our attention to the scripture, and we're going to look at Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. This is part of Jesus' life story where he is taken into the desert and tempted by the devil, or by the tempter, by the Satan, the adversary. And we're going to just read and let the, let the scripture sit with us before we go back to looking at how that uh, pans out in Kuiper's life and how it will look in each of our lives. Matthew 4, verse 1 then. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on, your hands, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So what you see here in this text is the tempter coming to Jesus as the second Adam, as the new humanity. He's, you know that because he says here, if you are the son of God, he questions his identity. He says, if you are the son of God, if you're really God's son, then you can do these things. And he's, he's doing exactly what he did in the garden. If you look in Genesis 3, where he comes to tempt Eve, he'll, he'll do this thing where he says, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat of any of the fruit in the garden? And she says, no, he said that we couldn't eat of this tree. But he, he deliberately twists the word of God and plays to the identity of the person. So his first tactic is to say, is to get you to think about the Bible differently than your Lord does. That, if you're a Christian here today, that's going to be what happens. It'll be, okay, fair enough, you're a Christian. The Bible, is it? Did God really say? Did God really say? Are you going to take it that seriously? Are you going to, are you going to stand on it that strongly? Are you going to actually act differently in life? Because the devil would be happy enough for you to assent to the fact of the Bible being God's word and for it being true. But he'd be very happy for that to be where it stops. And actually, you don't walk any further. It doesn't change the way you do life because the trust, the enactment of it isn't in place. So how does the Lord conceive of the Bible? 
he, he looks at it and says, this is the, the word of God. I live by it. It's like food to me. It nourishes me. The devil would be happy for you to say that the Bible is just useful or interesting, fascinating, something like that. You might think that you've got to the point of trust at that point. No, you've got to the point of fascination, of interest, of being sidetracked, perhaps. You're not treating it as food. You treat it as data. But Jesus sees the Bible as God's true speech. He sees it as binding upon his life. He sees it as if God is addressing him face to face. And this is how, if you're a Christian, your Lord is the Lord Jesus. That's not news to you. But your attitudes should be his attitudes. Your attitudes should be reflective of his attitudes. So his attitude to Scripture is something of vital importance to us. If he sees it as God's true speech to us in the here and now, if he sees it as something binding upon his life, then how much more should we as those who seek to follow in his wake? We need to test this. We need to test this. So let me turn to Kuiper and what what this uh, experience that he underwent in this regard was. Um, I've got some pictures for you so that it will flesh out the picture. And this is, the, this is a very beautiful place at Mashlaus where he's, he's born. And uh, he was raised in a pastor's family here, raised in the, in the midst of what was known as modernism. So this is, uh, it might be hard for you to get your head around that 100 years ago, 150 years ago, you're talking about modernism because that's not very modern. Yes, it is. That's very modern. And uh, this is, what's meant by that is this turn ever since the Enlightenment, ever since the French Revolution, towards a prizing of rationality, of reason, of human reason, over and above other authorities. He grew up in that kind of environment. Just to give you an idea, a couple of decades before, uh, a couple of generations before, Thomas Jefferson, who was a very modernist president of the USA, took his Bible and carved out all of the episodes that looked irrational to him. All of the things were either miraculous or just extraordinary. So things like resurrections, things like miracles started, like, disappeared from his Bible. And he said, look, let, let's just have the ethical teaching of Jesus. Let's just have you know, the bare bones, how to live your life in a sensible way of Jesus. So you see here he's written, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. There you go. So there's lots of scholarship going on. There's lots of languages. There's lots of extracting truth going on. But can you see the jump that you've made by doing that? You have to say, I know. I can stand with my my rational opinion over and above this text, and I can extract for you the truth. I can get to that for you. Well, thanks very much, Jefferson. But it has to be a no thanks for me. We live centuries on from this, and these kind of findings have been relativized. So the whole idea that you can take the scriptures and analyze them in the way that you would with any text carries on, and it should carry on, but it's been helpfully relativized as people have come to doubt in a postmodern era, which is the era we live in, whether you can really say with all certainty this is true and that's not. That people have now brought in a healthy doubt of human rationality, and that's the phase that we live at. It's a good phase to live, live at. So Kuiper, he, he lived in those kind of waters, and he went, to, he went to this university called the University of Leiden, where um, he studied under Professor Scholten, who uh, was renowned as a proponent of the historical critical method, a way of splitting the text apart 
and uh, getting to getting to you know where the real sources are, what the truth is, analysing it, putting it under the microscope, standing above it. And this, he, you know, he was following in the wake of many scholars from Germany, and this is basically the schooling that Kuiper had. And he he sat under this teaching for seven years. So from the age of 18 till 25, he's there uh, learning all of this stuff, learning a lot of very clever academic uh, moves, things that are not completely wasteful, but if they become sovereign, and especially if they become over the word of God, can be very damaging. So he learned this, and he was, he was pleased. And uh, I've got a picture of him when he uh, graduates here. There he is as a young professor, a young doctor, and he, he was looking to go into an academic career. But as is so often the case with these things, funding wasn't forthcoming. So he became instead a pastor. And being be no doubt, this was definitely his second choice. Became a pastor of a church in a rural place called Based. And, and there it is, very, very picture postcard, very nice. And he turned up there, and he writes in a, a letter called Confidentially, uh, he write, uh, the letter itself is called Confidentially, and he writes it to a friend explaining in later life why he cares so much about the church. Uh, but he relates this episode of him coming along to his first pastorate. He said, says to his friend, I came not primarily to give out of what I possessed, but with the quiet prayer that my empty heart would be quickened, that's made alive, and fed by the life of the church. Think about that for a second. He's, he's studied theology for seven years, this guy. He studied at a high level. He's, he's, he's gone deep into the scriptures in a certain way. He turns up at this place, which by, by all accounts was just a village of peasants, right? It's, these are unlearned people. And he turns up trying to preach using the knowledge that he has gained. He doesn't receive a good reaction from them. They're very pious Calvinist commoners. They are very religious and very used to putting into practice functionally the things that they say they believe. So remember that diagram, the trust part for them is as high as the content part. They've, they've learned the content and now they trust it. And they walk out their life in the fear of God, trying to follow Jesus as best they can. He says, the reception that awaited me was far from cordial. Nevertheless, these simple, he, he's not very complimentary about them, these simple, if somewhat irritated souls did not repel me. With the meager knowledge of the Bible I had picked up at university, I couldn't measure up to these simple folk. Hear that again. The meager knowledge of the Bible I picked up at university. Seven years. Seven years. He, he would later explain that basically what the mode of teaching the Bible was in the, in the academic waters that he was swimming in, he said it was like going to a feast where it's all laid out for you on the table, but instead every thread on the tablecloth has been numbered and there's no wine in the goblets. He's just saying it's this lifeless shell. That's what scholarship had become, biblical scholarship, under this particular configuration that he was party to. The meager knowledge of the Bible that I picked up at university could not measure up to these simple folk. And, he, you know, he's very aware of class, shall we say. So in, in his writings, he doesn't, he, he's not complimentary about them. He says, you know, the things that they were saying were said in the crudest of terms and as pure country folk. But I could hear John Calvin spoken through a country farmer's voice. You know, that he's, he's there being pretty, pretty crass about it. But God breaks through his armory, his arrogance, his 
sense that he can judge over Scripture and that he shouldn't be judged by Scripture. Now, here's a picture of one of those commoners, strict-looking lady called uh, Pitcher Baltus, who five decades later, Kuiper wrote an obituary of in the, in the national newspaper. Five decades later, he's prime minister at this point. He's, he's been influential in pretty much every sphere of public life. And he writes an obituary and says, this lady, who was a Calvinist commoner, a rural maid, has influenced this country more than anyone else. He, sa- he says, she's the reason. She's the reason because she woke him up to the fact that he had all of this head knowledge. None of it was heart and none of it was hands. None of it was worked out. And he said, eventually they just overturned me. He says their unremitting perseverance has become the blessing of my heart. The fact that they were so belligerent and saying, no, you accept the full sovereignty of Jesus or you accept nothing. He's either Lord of all and Lord of you or he's not Lord at all. And, and he, he talks about, it's almost comical, I pleaded with them, you know, give me an inch just so I can have my rationality above it in some way. And they, no, because that doesn't work. If you are a creature and he's your creator, he stands above you. The things that he says stand above you as binding upon you. This is not a dumb guy. And this is not like he kissed his brain goodbye. He spent the rest of his life applying all of his scholarly knowledge to publicly honoring the word of God. He wrote columns in newspapers every week throughout his life. He wrote multi-volume sets on theology. Now, unfortunately for most of you in here, they're in Dutch. But they're coming into English. Some of you will be all right. He says, their unremitting perseverance, their doggedness has become the blessing of my heart, the rise of the morning star for my life. I'd been convicted, but I had not yet found the word of reconciliation. That they brought to me with their imperfect language in that absolute form which alone can give rest to my soul. In the worship and adoration of a God who works all things, both the willing, that's the wanting to, and the working according to his good pleasure. He realized actually, no, it's God who has caused me to have these appetites. It's God who's put these awkward people in my path. And before I turn back to our scripture, can I just say, do you have someone like this? Do you have a picture about us? Do, are you one of these people for someone else? Should be both. Actually, in a family of God, a local manifestation of the family of God like we have here, you should both be one of these people who won't move on the word of God for the sake of other people. And you should have people who won't move on the word of God for the sake of you, who will hold you to account. No, God said, hasn't he? Has God said something? Is it written? Like when Jesus is uh, combating the tempter, it is written, it's written, it's done. He said it. And if it's a word said by God, literally said by him, then it is co-divine with him. He speaks these words. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that in many times, God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets in different ways. And in these last days, the days we live in, he's spoken to us through his son, the word made flesh. That's not just a figurative idea, friends. It's not just he's like the word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. The word brought right up close to you. And the written word, the scriptures, the Bible witnesses to that word of God made flesh. 
And what you see in that is the word of God made flesh, that Jesus submitting to the written word of God. That's his attitude to the scriptures. This is the strongest argument that one could possibly make for trusting the scriptures. There's others. There's other sort of logical corroborations and uh, things like that that I could give you about why you should trust the word of God. But you should trust it because if you're a Christian here today, friend, Jesus Christ has broken into your life, claimed you for the Father. He's taken you into the throne room of God. So you should care about everything that he says, all the witness that's given to him. So let's get into this then. Let's actually look at the, in the time we have left, those words in Matthew. Set Kuiper to one side now. This is about us here. The first thing, we, we have to ask ourselves in this encounter here, Jesus being tempted, Jesus being led astray or would be led astray by the devil. What does the devil do? He starts playing on his confidence in God's speech. Has God really said? Satan addresses him as the new Adam. He says, if you really are the son of God, if you look in Luke's gospel, it traces back the genealogy of Jesus and it goes to Adam and it says, Adam, the son of God. So he's consciously using this link. Satan addresses him as this new Adam and he says, well, look, that's your identity. If you are really the son of God, This time, Jesus offers the response that our first parents didn't. He offers the obedience that the Israelites in the desert didn't offer. He's undoing the mistakes and the missteps of the people of God and of humankind. Adam and Eve represent the whole of humankind, so he's undoing those mistakes. Those in the desert that cried out for manna and cried out against Moses saying, God isn't providing for us, God isn't providing, you should have left left us in Egypt where we were provided for. Jesus is here in his desert, in the wilderness, walking it out again, but doing it correctly. He's doing human life correctly so that any who trust in him, who are placed in the Son, are placed in human life as it is lived correctly. Because of him, not because of you. He's undoing it. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His sustenance is to be dependent on God speaking. He says it's food. This might release some of you here today. When you're trying to read the Bible, some of you might make a real effort at trying to get the Bible into you. You can feel quite guilty, especially you know when you think of the giant devotional lives that other people have. People can You can feel overwhelmed. Even if you're really great at this, you can feel overwhelmed because you have an enemy who will come to you and say to you, your Bible reading's not up to much. You don't know much about the scripture. You don't know how the books are laid out. You don't know technically what's going on. It's a huge volume of material. How will you ever get that into you? You have that same tempter, right? But you have the same encourager. You have the same one who says to you, no, it's not reading, it's feeding. You've got a God who wants to feed you today. He wants to feed you. He wants to build you up, nourish you. He doesn't want you to become a data storehouse. That's not what's going on. You're not like the cloud. You're not just to have it having more and more data stored in you. You are being nourished and fed. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Woman doesn't live by bread alone, except but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word comes to you to feed you. So some of you need to be released today from feeling under the cosh of reading. Let me say again, feeding. He wants to feed you. If you're not good at reading, listen to it. It's not lesser. It's not worse. It's not a worse way to take it in. 
So people feel quite noble about having a book in their hands. Fair enough. If you like that, do that. Yeah, it's good. Why not? Lots of, lots of good comes with that. You've got, you've got a phone. You've got, you've got something that you can plug into. There's so many versions of the Bible for free. You can just listen to it. You listen to it on the train. You can do whatever you like. It's just as good. The Lord still wants to feed you. He doesn't say, oh, no, you've got an iPod. No, there's no food for you there. <laughs> like, the, the words are coming from the mouth of God to feed you. He's willing. He wants to bless you. He wants you to be fed. Now, if you love reading from a book, great. Do it that way. Don't think that you're better than someone who's got, got an iPod on next to you who's, who's just listening, who's availing themselves of the technology we have. Great. Praise God. What could be a bit awkward is saying that it's sufficient. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That could sound, maybe it sounds to you a bit extreme. Well, how should I live? You should live literally by the Bible. Ooh, should I? Should it kind of be the Bible plus? Or, you know, the Bible and the Guardian? Something like that, you know, around my way. Um, so, a bit extreme, in need of some balance. Look, I'm not saying don't read anything else. I'm not saying don't read bestsellers, don't read fiction, don't read whatever. A Christian needs to take the Bible seriously but you should read everything else as well. You shouldn't be afraid of culture. You shouldn't be afraid of things that are put out as other stories, other truths. You need to filter them through the Bible. You need to actually test what's given to you as other food and say, well, okay, this is a bit nourishing. It's not the Bible, but it's, it's going to give me something. Now listen, Scripture should be brought into conversation with all things. But, its voice must be the loudest. Scripture should be brought into conversation with everything, but its voice must be the loudest. And where it conflicts with something else you're reading, you say, but it's written. But the word says, but my Lord, what would Jesus say if he's, if he's dealing with this thing I'm reading? He'd say, yeah, but it's written. Yeah, don't forget, there's actually a word of God on this matter. It must be the loudest, just as if God himself was being brought into the discussion as a conversation partner. We must stand under scripture and it means two things the first thing is that it means the debates must happen if we're standing under scripture it means that we must bring other uh, sources other truths other pur purported truths into conversation with the scripture number one the debate must happen number two the scripture must rule us we bring we have the conversation we have many conversations but the scripture must rule us it must rule us in the conversation as an authority, not just as another, oh yeah, but it says in the Bible this, but it says in the Guardian that. The two must clash and scripture must win out for you if you want to follow Jesus. Okay, second thing then, Jesus, saying, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's actually his food to put this into practice. And you see him doing this when he now deals with the second question of how must scripture rule us? Okay, you can, say, you can say, fair enough, scripture must rule us. Does that mean I just jump into the scripture, pull out a proof text out of nowhere, you know, maybe something that God said to the Israelites millennia ago, and I just apply it wholesale and blankly to my life now? No, it's clearly not going to read that. It's, you throw yourself off a building because it says in the Bible that God will look after you. That's what, that's what the tempter is saying to Jesus. And it does! 
Like, that's the thing. Jesus at no point says, hey, look, there's some bits of Scripture I like, there's some bits I don't. He says, yeah, it does say that. It also says, it also says, it's really important for you to see that it also says you don't test God by doing stupid things. You don't say, oh, okay, I'll go, I, you know, it says throw yourself off because his angels are going to look after you. Oh, I better do that then. No, it also says don't put God to the test. Live your life sensibly, you know. And actually, you know, he could have gone elsewhere for that, but he goes to the part in Deuteronomy where the rebellion happens, where, where people were disobedient, he's obedient. He undoes it with scripture. He doesn't deny the truth of that scripture. He doesn't relativize it, but he does bring it into conversation with scripture. He shows that scripture itself is coherent and not nonsensical. Now, there's people even now who, who walk in these ways where they'll take a scripture and do the wrong thing with it. Here's a picture of uh, some snake handlers in the Appalachian Mountains. There they go. Do you know the, do you know the scripture that these guys have taken very seriously? No? Uh, I can see, hear people going, serpents, serpents. Yeah. Snakes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so exactly. In Mark's gospel at the end, it says that you, you, you handle serpents and they won't harm you. And these geniuses have said, what we should do... I don't think there's anything in Scripture that would say you shouldn't put the law of God to the test or anything. So let's handle some serpents. What I particularly like about this picture is the guy on the left. He's the one who is now having second thoughts about, about taking this scripture on its own. Okay, yeah, just, just so you know, people still do this. Hopefully you don't do this in your life, taking a text, not just the serpent thing, but taking one promise of God or one word of God and playing it off against the whole counsel of God. You take the counsel of God as coherent. He has spoken coherently and across the board, okay? There's, a, there's, oh, there's another picture of, the, of a, a sticker here, which is just, again, this kind of idea of proof texting. This is so self-contradictory. That, here we go. God said it. That settles it. Whether we believe it or not. There's a... You have to do that last thing to make the first things work. Don't Anyway, again, this is not what I'm advocating here. I'm advocating following Jesus. Follow Jesus in his trust of the sufficiency of Scripture. Follow Jesus in his coherent view of Scripture. He sees it as cohering. He doesn't say, okay, I'm, it's obviously not true, but I'm just going to persuade myself to, to go and batter people with this text. No, if you are unsure about things, come to the family of God. Come to wisdom. Go to your Pietro Baltus, who's going to just school you on the text, who's going to take you back to it. You shouldn't just have one of those people, by the way. You should have a community. It should be a community of the word. The only way that we're going to be a community of the word is that we trust our Lord is a Lord of the word. He's not just the Lord of the word as in, in charge of it, but he is the Lord who stands underneath it. His attitude to it is one of reverence and obedience. That's what we want. If you want to follow Jesus, you follow his attitudes in every area of life. So John 5.39, he says this of himself. You search the scriptures. He's talking to the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's them that bear witness about me. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you search the scriptures, you go through all the scriptures, looking for, looking for you know, what's the rules for life, 
And you totally miss it when you don't realize all of the scriptures are about me. Now, look, if you think that's a bit of a grandiose claim, just, just know that the Lord Jesus really believes it. And he says it twice more. Like he says in the, in the Gospel of Luke when he's walking with the two on the road to Emmaus. Do you know these guys? So they're the ones. So after the resurrection, they're walking along and he, he pranks them, basically. It turns, turns up in disguise and walks with them for a time. And they, he's, he's like, what's up? What's up? What's up with you? You look sad. He's like, oh, we had a Lord, but then he got crucified. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, you can tell he's itching to just, no, no, no. Resurrected, here I am. And he says, <laughs> like he does eventually explode. He says, look, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have ever said. What he means is how slow you are to believe the whole Old Testament. And it says, and then he proceeded to tell them from the prophets, from Moses, and from the Psalms as well, that says it expands it. So that's like basically all the Old Testament scriptures, everything that was said concerning him. So he clearly, he's not just saying they're all about me in a general way. He's saying they are specifically and providentially by the will of God about me. Yes. These written words of God point to the incarnate, the infleshed word of God who's going to come and rescue and make a new humanity. And he, he, he tells them this. He's convinced all of these scriptures are about me. All of them point to me. There's, we have resources on this as well. I think one to recommend to you is Andrew Wilson's little book, Unbreakable, which is subtitled, What the Son of God Says About the Word of God. How good is that? That's, that is, again, rehearsing this argument, what the Son of God says about the Word of God. Because you want to know that, right? If the Son has set you free and made you free indeed, if you have been saved by this Jesus Christ... If you've been rescued for all eternity, if you've been brought into life in all its fullness, you want to know what he says about the Bible. Well, that's what Andrew's little book does. It actually collects up you know, what the Son of God says about the Word of God. Do you know, friends, what that's going to do? If you really, really believe this is what Jesus says about the Word of God, you will stand on it in a different way. You, you, will, you will say yes when you would have said no to things. You will say no when you would have said yes to things. You will pass it on to your children and your grandchildren and anyone else who will listen with full confidence because you'll be like, this is God speaking. This is the word of life being put into you. You'll stop doing things that you're doing gladly because you'll be like, hang on. No, I've got a solid rock to stand on. It's not just the person of Jesus. It's actually description about the whole of life that he subscribed to that he unquestioningly obeyed as the word of his father given to him. He modeled it for us. He showed us. He lived it. So lastly, in this conversation that he has with the tempter, <laughs> the devil gets desperate. He just says, look, just worship me. eh? I'll give you stuff. So stupid. So the creator of everything. So he's saying to the creator, Look, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these nations. He's like, They're my nations. You don't go around giving me the things which are mine. But he doesn't say that. He just says, go away. Go away. It's written, you only worship the Lord. You don't go around. Look, he makes it into another lesson, an object lesson for us. Actually, your worship, your bowing down, your trust, your pouring out of your life, your absolute reliance. How much should you trust the word? You should trust it so much that if it falls away, your faith falls away as well. You should trust it that much. That's what he's saying. Worship the Lord alone. If you want to follow Jesus, you take on his attitudes. The only other options are basically facing things situationally. You could, they come up and you're like, oh, quick, I need a scripture. No, 
That's, that's not the preparation that you need to put in place. You need to be steeped in the word of God. You need to be fed full so that when, those situa- when the tempter does turn up and say, does it really say, you say, yeah, it says that. It also says this. Feed yourself. Avail yourself of all the gifts that God would give you. There's always more. He wants to give you more, friends, more of his word today. That's the thing that compels you to read scripture, is that he has more for you. You don't want to build on any other foundation. You don't want to build on received wisdom. You don't want to build on the fashions or the cultures of your time because they will change and you'll be very unfashionable and your faith will be wrecked. Okay? You build on the solid rock, the word of God. There's a couple of objections before I close then. People could say, these ancient writers got Jesus wrong. If you've got this Jesus who comes into your life and you trust him and then you learn about him in the word, how do you know that this is right? It's just one answer to that. The providence of God, the God who saved you, the God who does the saving work in you, is also well able to organize all, all things to work them together to bring about an effective witness to himself. He hasn't mumbled. He hasn't spoken unclearly. He's spoken clearly. He spoke through the prophets in the past, and in these last days, he speaks through his son, Hebrews 1. Okay? If you want more on that, I've got more on that, but that's for another time. You could then say, well, if he's so providential, what about all these other scriptures that are knocking about? What about these other holy books that people have? So let's just do those really quickly. This is going to be so, so undeservedly quick. But I think that you should know. Firstly, the Jewish scriptures. We've already dealt with those. We follow those, right? But we follow them realizing what many people in the world who follow those scriptures don't realize, and that is that they all point to Jesus Christ, as he said, Okay, And that's testable. There's a whole area called biblical theology or redemptive historical theology. Edmund Clowney's book, The Unfolding Mystery, brilliant, read it. There's, there's loads of others like that. So we believe those ones. New Testament, that's ours. The Islamic scriptures, the Quran, that's an extension. That's still within the Abrahamic faiths, isn't it? So they, they protest that they are descended from Ishmael. Now go and read the story of Hagar and Ishmael and then come back to me and Tell me whether that's a good idea to base your scriptures and your faith upon that. That's just, that's just for free for now. Hindu scriptures, polytheism, you're dealing with many gods. It still gives you the problem of unity and diversity. There's no unity in it. So those are problematized. Sikhism and Buddhism are both reactions against Hinduism. So Sikhism is quite an admirable reaction because it kind of tries to flatten the class system thing that you have going on. Buddhism's just atheism. And uh, so, 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 and so, not of interest to us because it doesn't deal with the main issue, which is how are you created? How do you get here? And how do you get saved? How, what, what's wrong with the world? What's right? What, how is the world made right? How is God superintending everything? It doesn't touch any of those things. It's basically a sort of baptized selfishness. So, um, we've got God with us. Our church is called Emmanuel Church. We stand by that. We stand by God with us in the world, incarnate, word made flesh. We stand by that word's attitude. We believe the word because we love Jesus. Jesus loves the word because it's God's. Jesus is God and he is the word made flesh. And the word written down is all about that word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me end off with the scripture. In John 1 verse 14 it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You can trust his words, friends. You can trust them not just as intellectual data, 
not just as an objective yes, but as a personal and subjective yes in your life. Yes, I will stand on this word. Yes, I will walk out my life in faith and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ and his words. Amen.